I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And my guest today is Steve Roach. Well, for me, it's always, there's, there has to be a very strong emotional feedback that's happening. And there has to be a very, uh, you know, sense of place and a sense of, of sometimes you're following a certain sound that's taking you into a realm of like a, an incredible memory state of some culmination of experiences from your past and then you tap into these sounds it's almost like a, a delayed sense of, um, of like a state specific memory where you're creating sounds after you've been there and then those sounds take you to that place consistently again or you know and then you and so in that sense the sounds are really like these you know when I'm sort of working in through this mysterious kind of ephemeral world and you start to like put your hands on that and then you start to like tune into those nerve endings where that stuff's happening internally you know in your in your in the actual sensation that's happening in your brain through the way the sounds are activating and, and all the stuff starts flowing and all the kind of the brain chemistry is getting you know activated through these kind of sounds that I'm working with as a pioneering cornerstone of ambient atmospheric electronic music, Steve Roach has dedicated nearly three decades to exploring myriad sound worlds that connect with a timeless source of inspiration. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. And Steve, you have been a real pioneer in the electronic ambient music field. Yes, uh, nearly 30 years and basically evolved as a artist in sound and an artist using technology since essentially the instruments became affordable and portable uh, to the... Like the old Mirage or... Yeah, even, I mean, well before that in terms of starting out with the early analog synthesizers that you only patched, you know, with patch cords. Oh, like a Moog or a... Yeah, the ARPs and the Moogs yep. and um, so, you know, my my attraction to sound and to creating and sculpting forms into shape really came from almost, from more of being a visual artist and wanting to be a, you know moving into painting or sculpting and so that's what brought me into you know working with sound as a sculptural kind of um, form and that was in the late uh, 70s when you know I discovered this music from Germany at the time by Klaus Schulze uh, Tangerine Dream, some of those, the, the electronic groups from Europe that were doing more abstract, more improvisational uh, pieces that were very strong on um, tonal quality uh, and, and the sense of dissolving time. So when I heard that, the, the sense of linear time, so when I started hearing these sound collages and these very hypnotic kind of trance-like pieces that they were creating, all of that was just really feeding my imagination um, in overdrive at that time in terms of already having a sense of knowing how to to make this kind of music, even before I knew what kind of instruments were being used to make it. So at that point I jumped in just head first into this um, world of electronic music and it could have been anything in terms of the instruments, but they happened to be electronic and again and they happened to be just being made for the, you know, the general public to be able to afford them. You didn't have to become, um, you know, ingratiated to an academic um, world in order to use the instruments. Oh, to go to a big mainframe well, yeah, computer, like, yeah. right? Or have to go into to Mills College and sign up for the whole program. I mean, I'm not. I was much more of a maverick in that sense of wanting to sort of hole up in my own space and just start going for it. And that's how that's what set the tone for yeah, me. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard "Switched On" Bach. It just, I couldn't believe that I was hearing the sounds I was hearing. Yes, and it it just continues from that. The "Switched On" Bach and the early Wendy Carlos, of course, Morton Subotnick, and his yeah. his experiments are still considered to be you know the cornerstones of the early early days. And I, you know, I was listening to that sort of thing, but again, I was really drawn towards a more um, an even more textural. Uh, quality in the sound that I was, you know, you might hear it in like some of the um, 20th century avant-garde composers of um, Ligeti or 
you know, Verez and that sort of thing in, in classical music. I mean, where they were using, um, you know, orchestral instruments, but to create very, um, you know, cosmic kind of, in the true sense of the word, um, colors and forms and. Because you sound more to me like that you're that you're a sculptor and a visual artist, but you do this with sound. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, my whole lifestyle is one of a of of an artist or. A, of a visual artist, a sculptor, a painter. I mean, you know, if you think about the life that these uh, that these kind of artists would live, which is they go into their studio for long hours at a time and they have their materials and then they start working in this most often a pretty solitary kind of environment where you're drawing upon the kind of um, psychological states and the moods and the emotions that your work draws up and draws forth. And so um, in that sense, it's almost still parallel. And then the work, when it's complete, when it, when I feel like, okay, this is now uh, what you would call an album because of you know the the word itself related back to when we had vinyl records, and that was an album. But let's say I have a recording that's now ready to be released on a compact disc or through iTunes or something. Then uh, at that point, you just there's a sense that this this piece that I've created is now finished it's it's you know I'm always taking it to a 74 minute limit you know <laughs> yes. I mean, counting down the stopwatch I'm you know just completely <laughs> filling that space even if it's with yeah. silence that's like slow fades for four minutes down to 73.59 seconds you know I'll be usually taking uh, your you know your perception down to that that point but so at that you know with that in mind it's like I'll be creating these these immersive spaces is, is really a good way to describe what I'm doing these days especially and so in that sense it's like um, you know a photograph or a painting or, or you know that's I wouldn't say a photograph because you take a photograph you know in one moment and sometimes I can create a piece in one moment I'll sit down and improvise record it it's done and, there, and there's nothing I can do to go back and enhance it. So those kind of perfect moments are also, you know, released as a document of where I go in the studio or in a live setting. So um, that's just, you know, really been a very consistently developing, evolving theme as an artist um, that, you know, as a sound artist to keep relating to it and sharing that kind of metaphor with the public so that that also helps to understand a bit more of my process uh, you know as an artist in sound so it's it also presents the music and or the, the the sound worlds that I'm creating is something beyond music where it you know when you oh completely yeah completely because I'm really getting a sense that you have a a, a pretty dramatic synesthesia that you actually you're, you have your hands on this sound. You're making a shape there. Absolutely. It's not just something that, that's fleeting. Well, that's perfect that you use that word because some of my first experiences back in the beginning would be to where I could, in that synesthesia where you're tasting sounds and there's like a, a sense of color is like creating a, like a, a release and, you know, and you're like, I could feel my, inside my mouth like a, salivation around certain sounds that would create these releases and so there was really an early very visceral and physical connection to sound that I couldn't could not avoid or could not ignore or had to you know answer the call to in terms of you know just throwing myself into it and now it's almost 30 years later and I at this point have a you know quite a large body of work I mean the, the Solo and group CDs are well over a hundred at this point. Yeah, and, yeah, I saw that. And it, and it's, you know, the quantity is like, I mean, I'm of course, um, sounds like a lot, but you know, in the music world, that that number of releases that that you would hear, you know, if you were a photographer or a painter or a sculptor, once again, in that world, that's like. When you do an opening, you might have 30 or 40 photographs or, or you know, 12 paintings that you worked on for the last year. Um, so it really relates more into that getting into the creative flow and then just letting it, you know, going with it. And so the early days when I was working with record companies, 
there was a huge conflict constantly where they wanted to, even if it was the smaller record companies. <laughs> you have to restrict it to three and a half minutes, man. Sorry. Yeah, or even if it was restricting it to, you know, like <laughs> long, a side long disc, they still wanted one album every 14 months. Right, right. So in the meantime, it, it just, you know, that thankfully that, that old paradigm faded out with, with the, um, you know, the sense that these independent record labels had any sort of, um, you know, clout in terms of like playing it on the major label scale because now the major labels, the independent labels, all the record labels are pretty much the wheels are off those vehicles and they're just starting to grind to a halt. And the artists that um, have continued to answer the call of their intensity to create and their need to be independent and control their own destiny have created their websites, they've created their own record labels. And now they don't answer to anybody in terms of like who you know your creative um, control is not an issue. It's Finally, just like it's if, direct. If I want to, yeah, if I want to release you know fifteen albums and over the over the course of one year, mm -hmm. then I can do that. And yeah. and then if you make them available directly, then of course the audience can choose with their own sense of intelligence about which ones they want to go towards. And you just present it in such a way. And it was something that. Frank Zappa was already well onto when, and that's why he had so much trouble with the major labels too, is that he was had a creative force to reckon with, and he, you know, he continued to then eventually make his own label. This was before the, even the internet, and that, you know, he he sort of set a really great example for all of us to, then when the the power, he was uncompromising. Yeah, and he just the, wouldn't do it. That's the word, right? And then I mean, that, there were a few conflicts with Warner Brothers, and then it just he finally was able to get the shackles off and just move on forward. But um. So I want to talk a bit more about the sculpting and mm -hmm. about the kind of experience you have when you are interacting with your media, because I get very much that it's not a passive media. Mm. It's very alive and very... Um, Where does it want you to take it sometimes, you know? That's, that, that comes to be the question. Right, that... Well, for me, it's always there's there has to be a very strong emotional feedback that's happening, and there has to be a very uh, you know sense of place and a sense of of sometimes you're following a certain sound that's taking you into a realm of like a, an incredible memory state of some a culmination of experiences from your past, and then you tap into these sounds. It's almost like a a delayed sense of, um, of like a state-specific memory where you're creating sounds after you've been there, and then those sounds take you to that place consistently again. Or you know, and then you and so in that sense, the sounds are really like these. You know, when I'm sort of working in through this mysterious kind of ephemeral world, and you start to like put your hands on that, and then you start to like tune into those nerve endings where that stuff's happening internally, you know, in your, in your, in the actual sensation that's happening in your brain through the way the sounds are activating and, and all the stuff starts flowing and all the kind of, the brain chemistry is getting, you know, activated through these kind of sounds that I'm working with. And that's, that's something I have an immense, uh, I feel, uh, intuitive connection to. Uh, not a scientific. I don't study it at that level. I just know after year after year, the when I'm hitting the those sweet spots mm -hmm. internally, and then I start to expand that, and then to work on it even more precise, and then it's just that's part of the the vocabulary, um, you know, as an artist over years that you strengthen, mm -hmm. and then I think you can see that in a, in so many artists' yeah. work, whether it's a painter, sculptor, musician. I mean, they you just start to strengthen that sense of knowing and that sense of trusting and expressing through a style or through a through a mode that is unique to that person you know that just becomes when you can recognize this or that or that from that particular nervous system right but it's not a cognitive process at all but i i, I really like the image i get you refer rather than to the composer you say to that particular nervous system right <laughs> so there's certain there's just there's a, you know, a, a sense of, of sense that I have, and a quality of needing to be in a kind of space, really, you know, quite 
intensely. And I and so now I create these spaces constantly. So I create these kind of living, breathing, diaphanous kind of atmospheric zones that support you know a, a, a more refined kind of state of of sustaining yourself in. I mean, it's really a, a kind of sound experience that a lot of people use that are in their daily day, daily life. A lot of folks use it for sleeping and they, they put it on and put it in loop mode and they'll go all night till the morning. And I, I do so many folks use some of my music or some of these pieces for that. Some people use it for creative support, for, um, you know, uh, inspiring and, and creating a a, um, a sustained environment to be creative within because the nature of these soundscapes can really um, support and be completely non-invasive and and supportive of a you know the creative flow and not impose itself on you at all but yet if you turn it off then it's like <laughs> right. something's gone and you know you need and that's why that's where the you know that's just a really cool sort of connection to have with um well with this audience that i've built over 30 years and and you know they it's just so exciting to to know that i'm creating these pieces that they're just craving to keep that flow uh with you know and and i mean i get quite a bit of artwork and and published books and these kind of pieces that are sent to me that were all created with the support of um you know, my more atmospheric pieces in, in their creative process. So it... We're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright. I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, Steve Roach. And how can people contact you, Steve? Right. The website is, of course, um, the direct way, and that's uh, www.steveroach.com. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, electronic ambient musician Steve Roach. Welcome back, Steve. Thank you, once again. And we were talking before the break about creating creative spaces with the ambient music and how you've built up an audience over about 30 years of this kind of work. When you are sculpting, do you happen to have a particular intentionality that you hold, or are you perhaps expanded beyond that in the way that you want to work the field or that you want to have people interact in the cooperative listening space, actually, that I attend that you do. Yeah, I mean, I think all of those points that you touched on are woven into the experience that can be drawn from in my sound worlds. The the initial motivation to go in every day and every night and every you know just there's this thing that just keeps drawing me in as an artist and um, it's just it's building with intensity each year as I grow older and deeper into my connection with the art I mean I feel like there's never enough time in the day to explore these um, dimensions that are opening up through being in this process over these years. It's like I'm just, I'm so far down into the labyrinth of possibilities. And combining my my desire to go into these new kind of darkened caverns and these kind of, you see this portal going off in that direction and there's a certain hue to it and but then it fades out and then there's this and there's, it's just there's... But a, it draws you, doesn't it? It keeps drawing and it keeps pulling you deeper and deeper and that's when you get to a place where I feel like I'm at now where, um, you know, you just develop that sense of, that sense of um, confidence in what you're doing. And so you can get really into these, far into these places where, where you might have any, you've lost all sense of feeling any, you know, walls around you or cave walls or the front or the back. I mean, you feel maybe something under your feet, but you're, pretty much out in, in a void-like space that's really a place that, you know, I've learned to trust a lot more over the years. And um, that happens, that kind of trust comes from just, you know, putting yourself in what you love to do over and over and over again and finding your way through that and then also through 
um, the support that you that I have with you know my relationship with um, my wife Linda Kohanoff and the kind of creative world that we've created uh, together and the way we support each other in that way. I mean that's really very um, much a part of that as well to for that kind of um, kind of relentless sense of wanting to keep going into the next around the next corner what's there and then but the actual you know work itself when you're in there there can be very specific kind of zones I want to move into there can be a very tangible you know space that has a particular color scheme and a kind of moodscape to it that it, it that that sets um, the parameters that you can you know I can keep working towards. So it's not some days it can be very um, much defined by these um, intangibles that are still very very much um, dictating you know a kind of shape that it wants to take. And other days it's like you're in there and you've got all the pain and it's a total Jackson Pollock kind of thing where you just start throwing the paint <laughs> and it starts dripping and it's running and then you start seeing the forms come through that. And you have to give yourself the freedom to do that and approach, you know, the kind of work that I'm doing from that state too because there's... There's, well, there's different information that comes to you that. Right, and it's like if you can allow yourself the freedom to just play and then have also the ability to then listen in a really open, um, you know, state of perception and then hear and then like continuing to train yourself to like let go and not, you know, overly form something too quick and just, again, that kind of open, clean slate state and then react and respond to those forms after you've really let your unconscious kind of out of the cage and just, you know, <laughs> really respond to you know the forms that that are there that are then become at a whole other level i mean the the, the kind of um reflection you can get back after you know having that kind of experience can be you know immense and and that kind of energy becomes contained in the in in the pieces i'm absolutely positive because the feedback that comes back from listeners is really the best sense of you know success in terms of whether this material is actually, you know, some, um, you know, aspect of my imagination that I'm thinking is really powerful or is it really, you know, reaching beyond my, my own um, sense of satisfaction that I created this and it's working for me and that, but, you know, it's really the, the kind of feedback and the kind of uh, resonations that come back from listeners and the way it's used in the world in that way, it just that also continues to, you know, to strengthen that. So it doesn't really influence, I would say, the direction I'm going in or what I'm making, but it strengthens and supports and and gives me confidence and remind you know, it's a great um, you know, reminder that this that this these spaces that I'm just drawn to naturally to create are, you know, hitting the mark. So do you notice because when I'm playing music, I'll notice a response from listeners mm -hmm. when, I, when I'm playing in a live situation. Uh, do you get that same sort of uh, response from pieces that you create and you record, but do you have a sense that they are being heard by many, many people, uh, sometimes millions of people? Like, for example, when you go on uh, Hearts of Space, for example, mm -hmm. and, and they play a recording. Do you get a sense of that when you're actually in the process of interacting uh, with the shapes in those spaces? The, do I get a sense that those pieces will then be heard by... Well, that people are actually present in, in a, a, a trans-temporal way. Mm. Yeah, I really... I don't... I don't have that sense. I don't. Yeah, I don't have that portal that I'm opening. I think the 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 port. I my feeling is is when I'm in my creative space, it's it, it's it's fairly much. Um, you know, I have kind of a shroud of of like protection around me. Okay. So I'm not really like there's. It's not wide open there at that point. It's um, very sort of contained, and you know, I'm working within that sort of containment there's like a container that that I'm drawing within where there's not 
so much not interference yes from mm -hmm. and that's why since um, we've moved out of Tucson and then further out into the desert uh, in the high desert where we're really not under any flight paths we're um, you know miles from people in terms of neighbors or any of that sort of thing I mean we have national forest around the whole the, the area there the ranch and so that has been um, even more uh, another powerful uh, new kind of level to work at and within and at first it was you know it was challenging and slightly like overwhelming because when you're working in the city and even though you you know like say even in here in San Francisco and say you have your your flat you have your artist loft or whatnot and you create all the things that you do in that space to make it your personal habitat and you have there's still a certain like constant level of drone and hum and sound and all that sort of thing that that always keeps you you know at this certain frequency so once we removed like a lot of that when we moved out there you know I thought I was already operating at this certain frequency and then realized when that was gone that you know it was very challenging for a while I mean it was and it really? took me to some great places. I mean, the, okay. the, now the challenging in terms of like feeling the open, that open space now that I can move into and not having, you know, not accessed it before, like down at a day-to-day -day level. I mean, certainly. Yeah. Oh, that's completely different to have a day-to-day. -day. Right. Where you're just, you know, that sort of. I mean, that's where you live now. Right. Where it used to be that sort of quiet, that kind of, you know, that kind of stillness would be where you would go and find it, visit, drink it in, hold it, bring it back. And even though within, you know, we lived in the outskirts of Tucson, but it was still, you know, by the time you got back, it was starting to already, you know, evaporate and th that sense. So now we have that, you know, that kind of environment to really draw in. And so that that's adding quite a new dimension into the subtlety and into the deeper stillness of my work. I've heard the desert and various kinds of terrain really contribute to your work. Mm. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, I've always had a strong sense of connection to, um, well, to the desert regions and grew up in San the outskirts of San Diego and, what, and a lot of my early memories were um, wandering out in desert areas and just you know, so you're more desert than, than ocean then? Yes, absolutely. Even though um, you know, I was in San Diego and you had the ocean, you had the mountains, you had the desert. And they yeah, were Black's Beach is great. But yeah. And <laughs> no, so it's down in Black's Beach a bit. Yeah. And so long, in the early days, those kind of, I would spend dynamic days where I would start out in the desert, go to the mountains, and then watch the sunset at the ocean. And that kind of diversity, um, you know, was really important powerful for me and that also appears in some of my work where I have very much more dynamic kind of landscapes but just the feeling of of um, expansiveness and a sense of um, a kind of portal out of the day-to-day -day sense of time and responsibility and to you know the things that are normally imposed upon you know, a person through day-to-day -day life, that Having stuff. Having cope with other people who have certain expectations right, or Right, and just the way time. time is measured out in the city, you're at, you have blocks, you have stoplights, you have all this stuff that's constantly imposing itself upon you that's creating that kind of quantize, quantization of, of time. So when you're out in, in the natural environment, that all melts away. And so that kind of, those kind of organic flow, that flow of time has always been a very very appealing to me in the way that I perceive and the, the kind of spaces I want to um, find myself in. So really the way I was, I guess, first exploring the, the, the sense of ambient music was just that I was putting myself in those environments, not as an artist or as a musician, but as a, as a, this young guy who was just perceiving and that was enough at that time, just to be in that experience of it as much as possible when I was up, you know, up through a young teenager. I mean, those were really very important places for me to be as much as possible. And now I'm, cre I'm creating that 
sense that I get in those places. I mean, we're living in such a place, but now I'm able to really take those kind of places and orchestrate them into being and then present them, you know, in my work. We're going to have to take a short break. The constraints of time are upon yes, us. once again. Yes, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, ambient musician Steve Roach. And how can people get a hold of you, Steve? Yes, www.steveroach.com. Great. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, ambient musician Steve Roach. Welcome back, Steve. When you were talking about being in the desert, it, it seemed to me that you were really attending to what it was like to participate there rather than just being there. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I could translate it perhaps into what I, how I would view that. I think, you know, since the since my most formative memories were formed in these desert environments in Southern California. Um, you know, it was always like there was this this kind of dialogue that I would start having with that quality that drives the need to express forward and and that 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 artistic motivation that starts to become alive. It was really you know being nourished and and watered so to speak even though you're in an arid environment it was really there was this nourishment that was coming from the expansiveness the 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 kind of sense of you know that infinite kind of sky that happens there the 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 kind of way that you your consciousness can expand out and it's not held in with the kind of boundaries that you get in in other places. I mean for some folks really draw upon the more enclosed uh, sort of northwest uh, um, rainforest environment very green and very sort of sheltered and that sort of thing and and I can appreciate that at times too but for me the that metaphor that the desert holds and the actual the physicality of that um, was something that felt and feels at the, you know still even stronger um, such a spontaneous kind of, um, sense of inspiration in sounds terms incredibly of, vitalizing yeah and it's just it's really like um, the same level as when I mean you don't really think about having to take the next breath but yet you're you breathe and you're and you're not like you know pushing the blood through your body but it's that's happening in, in that state. So being in those kind of places is at that level of just such a, like a birthright to be there in a sense of being connected into a kind of a very strong sense of being at, a, at your spiritual home where you resonate at this place that just feels right. Like, I mean, I love being in the Bay Area. I've spent a lot of years here, a lot of friends, a lot of connections, but it doesn't have that sense for me that it's like a nice place to visit, and but you know the heart craves to be in that in that environment that you know that I've continuously um, strived to be in, and and you know that part of that connection to the desert is exploring and experiencing many different deserts, and you know I've been to the the deserts of Australia and traveled through there and had a great connection and a tremendous opening there in terms of a deeper understanding of land memory and, and, and well the people literally sang it into being from right. what they say right so the dream time um you know the dream time creation story it's like it's hard to call it a myth but their story i mean that's something i really was drawn towards in the in the 80s and i created an album around that time called dream time return which became very um very much, uh, you know, one of the pinnacles in my body of work, and that 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 particular recording really uh, was able to bridge these different levels of perception that that I am talking about in terms of the the dissolving of time and the infusion of sound with this very specific intention to then not be so intentional, you know. So it's. <laughs> 
It's a, right. it's a right. very, it's a kind of piece that you can put on and put it into loop mode and let it play for three weeks and it won't wear you down. I mean, if you're tuned That's in. That's unusual. If, it's, if you're tuned into that kind of space, I mean, it's just, it has that, it's that quality that I, I want to infuse in my work that, that it's that same quality that you get when you're in a, a natural environment. And I mean, when you hear those sounds that happen throughout the, the morning sounds of, of the birds and then it goes kind of still and, and then it starts another kind of gathering of birds and insects happens in the late afternoon and then you get this deep hours of the night kind of silence that's immense and occasionally you'll have a midnight songbird going and so but that stuff's all just, just you never tire of that and and it feeds you and it gives you this connection to a living organic changing world and those are the qualities that I just want to stay really um, you know attentive to and and understand that and then infuse my work with that kind of sense of of um, where every sound has a, a kind of importance and it's there for a very you know clear reason but yet it's not um, self-conscious in itself for being there it's just like the way things are in nature like that and when you were in Australia, was that when you learned how to play the didgeridoo? It was. I, well, I actually met up with a tremendous didgeridoo player there, who an Aboriginal um, player that I became friends with, and then made a, my first didgeridoo with him. But at that time, I just, you know, he was playing it. I was recording him and re went on to record his first solo didgeridoo album. And um, that was in the mid-'80s at the time when the instrument was still it's very much not in our culture. It wasn't an instrument that most people had heard of or knew of, except for a few, you know, songs or something. So um, eventually, you know, my desire to then really start playing it grew stronger. In the beginning, I just felt like, you know, almost like I had this kind of respect about the instrument and working with David, and I just, you know, it just felt like at the right time if it was important. And then it became more uh, you know understood at a deeper level for me and then then yeah i jumped jumped over the chasm and then you know really have since you know i play it um you know and, and use it quite a bit and i'll be using it in you know my concert i'm doing um while i'm here yeah you're going to play in grace cathedral that's correct and really what a space very feel very very honored to be in that space presenting um, a quality of my life's work in that space and I mean what a space to present um, this these kind of sounds in so it's and that's that's the kind of um, environment that just I mean I feel those kind of spaces in in the city or in the cities around the world I've played in cathedrals in Europe and I mean they're really uh, such a the perfect space to present um, you know this kind of work in because it's all it's really about having a container a very large expansive container that is designed to enhance the um, spiritual dimension of sound and yet that radiates out through the whole region mm-hmm but I really appreciate what you're saying about the utility of the containment mm-hmm to, to hold something as you're, as you're making it, as you're experiencing it, mm -hmm. as you're being infused by it. Right, and then, and then it does, it expands beyond the grace. I mean, it'll just, but to have that, you know, that as the, the sacred vessel that it, you're holding it in. I mean, if you were to play it out in Golden Gate Park or... Oh, it'd be completely different. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't have the same sort of dimension so you, of... You're, you're playing that space. That you space is your instrument. You're absolutely that. Could, that's exactly how I describe it. Is I'm in there to tune into the space and to and so as the this you know as this music unfolds in these places. I mean, this interview will run after that has occurred. After this has occurred, but the, the we'll idea be recording it though, right? And, and the the. The, but the idea of creating mu um, sound and music for a space is absolutely like the core of what where my music comes from. And if you, if you, when you hear my work, it's I'm creating these spaces 
constantly with um, very sophisticated digital reverbs, and so I'm you know creating that sense of a location uh, in the studio. So to bring that sound and then actually have it in in a, a space that's designed for that is just you know it's, it's a living space and it breathes and it's and you know so over that course of two hours, uh, the, you know I'll just continue to expand and merge into that space and and so that'll be, be a genuine experience of carving and shaping and and forming the music into a into its own unique body that will only exist at that time in that space and even that, though it's recorded it won't be the same yeah it will never be i mean it the only way it can be experienced is just sitting in there for two hours and then especially in that setting i mean you could record something in a theater in you know Berkeley or you know up around here and play it and then you're going to hear a certain kind of quality that happened you know but it's not going to you're just going to lose something immense and I think this particular setting that's why it's just for me the the that sense of um, just the present moment and the experience that happens with live music that continues to and live, you know, it's again, it's beyond music in such a place where it's almost uh, like the the vessel itself is will have its own tone that I'll find in there and draw that out, and and then it be becomes a, a mutual co-creative experience because the bodies of all of us in there are going to help resonate and tune that building together. I mean, if you have another thirty folks come in and they're sitting over here, it's going to change the character of the space. People I know are going to get up and walk around and probably hear it from different vantage points. I hope. I love that sort of thing when that happens. Cool. So, um, no, you must sit in one place. Right. <laughs> so. Anyway, we have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright. I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, ambient musician Steve Roach. And we will. Oh, how can people get a hold of you, Steve? Yes, at triple uh, W Steve Roach R O A C H dot com. Great. Well, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright and I'm your host today on Attunement and my guest is ambient musician Steve Roach. And welcome back, Steve. Thank you. Before the break, we were talking about playing spaces, but also it was interesting for me to attend what it must have been like for you to begin to play the didgeridoo with using your breath as different than a synthesizer. And I do want to talk about the synthesizers in the last part of the show here, but what was that like for you, playing that with your breath? Well, if, at first it's, you know, it's a very um, challenging instrument to learn to play because of the, you know, the circular breathing. Explain to us what circular breathing is. Right, essentially you're taking quick breaths in through your nose while you're maintaining a steady stream of air out through, you know, your the back of your throat, filling your cheeks up. So it's like a, um, like a bagpipe kind of sensation that you're creating where you're the bag of the bagpipe is is your cheeks where you're storing the air and you're pushing the air out through a controlled opening in your in your lips and you're topping off the bag of the bagpipe through these quick snorts of air that just you're just topping off the top of your lungs and letting air in so it's a continuous flow right and you're just you're through that cycle of drawing in topping off your lungs letting your cheeks fill up with air as they as they push the air out that process, you know, at first is like, well, just seems over, you know, just daunting and frustrating. And through techniques of using water uh, to replace the air in your cheeks, I mean, you could, I could explain this on the radio where you just fill your cheeks up with water and you just push the water out and you use your finger against your, your cheek that's billowed out with water. And as you're pushing the water out, then you breathe in and out through your nose at the same time. And when you get that sensation that you can breathe in and out while pushing a steady stream of water out through your mouth, that's when the switch was triggered. Bless your heart, buddy. I wanted to learn how to circular breathe for a long time. Man. Well, that's the way. That's part of the way. So once you get that sensation of doing the breathing, then you have to maintain the tone with your lips, playing the didge. And, and uh, my friend David Hudson, Aboriginal didge player that um, you know I was talking about earlier, he taught me the these basic ways of squeezing the air out, like a rhythmic kind of um, 
pulse and as you do that rhythmic pulse squeezing it out you're taking the quick breath in and so eventually you know through this amazing willpower and um, you know quite a few weeks of some fairly nasty sounds that you're making <laughs> with and without the didge you can practice then something you know starts to happen and it's an amazing switch that that gets thrown and when that switch is thrown uh, I've seen it happen now with a lot of folks who I've taught, um, you know, since I've learned to play, and and it seems like a lot of folks are learning very quickly now. I don't, you know, through the field out there, through the field of influence that that it's out there, you know, that the, the field of the of the didgeridoo, yeah. right? And and so people are, can pick it up, you know, with almost like within a half an hour. I've seen people almost. I mean, they get the tone, then they almost get the breath, and then that's what takes time. But the um, physical sensation of it is just unbelievable. I mean, it feels so, you feel so um, supercharged by it. I mean, because it's, you know, you're oxygenating your whole system. You're getting into these, you know, rhythmic breath of fire-like rhythms. And um, so in that sense, as far as, you know, the pranic kind of supercharged um sense that it gives you I mean it's it's such a you know it's just a fantastic instrument for your physical health in that sense and just the vibratory nature of playing it and what it's doing through your entire body and one way to to, to, to see the, the actual sensation happening is if you look at a like a digital readout on a microwave or something like that and when you're playing with the didgeridoo the numbers start rolling because you're hitting this tune you know the beat frequency of the lights that are the light that's feeding the LED in the in the in the microwave so you really get that sense of vibration happening when you're strobing and the light and the numbers start rolling you know so um so it's a whole body experience yeah body mind soul and beyond and so the connection with that instrument for me when it when I finally um, sparked the gap and and was able to do you know the, get into circular breathing and really start to master it and start to really play it as an instrument the um the infusion of that instrument in back into the world that i was already so immersed in with you know creating these very rich harmonic drones and and kind of didgeridoo like sounds on my favorite analog synthesizer equipment uh you know when i started to infuse those two together it just something happened in, the, in that world that was just Im immensely powerful because then you had, you know, the beat frequency of not of the visual readout on a screen, but the frequency between and the tonal uh, merging of an instrument that's maybe forty thousand years old melting with with the with the the instrument of transformation of now, which would be you know the you know a synthesizer which in the right hands can really have that same kind of visceral primordial quality that the didgeridoo has and they were both I feel created for the same kind of purpose that the didge was created as a ceremonial uh, you know piece to like create openings out of day-to-day -day life and for me the synthesizers that came along eventually when they were created by Donald Buchla right across the bay I mean, these guys were pushing the envelope in terms of consciousness research at that time, or just you know, consciousness you know exploration in the in the in the '60s. And so, a lot of the instruments that were created through the, the outgrowth of of that era, um, you know, to continue to explore and push the boundaries of consciousness, you know, that's where the electronic synthesizer thing came through. So, at that point, the merging of the two. Um, just you know, created this this um, domino effect that, that's heard in a lot of my music and, and a lot of music out there. When when a lot of folks started to discover that the interface of the primordial instrument instrument with the with the electronic world. Yeah. So well, in that sense, the didgeridoo became almost the way the sitar uh, was then kind of earmarked for a while in the '60s, almost to the point to where you know, it was exploited and you were hearing it in, in, in commercials and it's like it became like this kind of little cliched sound of um, world culture or something, you know. And now I feel like it's, it's kind of gotten its place back into the, 
realm of respect, you know, in terms of the popular media. I mean, you don't hear it exploited so much, and but in, just in terms of the power of the sound itself, I mean, you just mm -hmm. you know can't get away from the tambora and and the and the and the uh, sitar are both like that for me. Yeah. Right. So, well, we're coming to the end of the show here. One question: When I knew that I was going to talk with you, I wanted to ask, what was it like when you first started using a Lexicon Two Twenty Four? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> that was the holy grail at that point. Uh -huh. That was like, and that's a, a digital reverb unit, by right. the way, for our listeners who don't know. Right, and that would be um, at the time like if you were, you know, a race car driver and you were only driving like, um, you know, like a go kart or something, and then all of a sudden you were given the keys to uh, the latest Ferrari or that. Lamborghini. Yeah. yeah, and here it is, and this is. <laughs> something like that in terms of you know the it was a real breakthrough I mean, yeah and, and then just the, the 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 sounds that you know that i was that i was creating at the time and the space that i was just so drawn to be um, placing myself within um, i mean it is technology based and it on a certain level it's like it's going to sound as good as the technology is that at that time that you're working with and at that time those things were, you know, pretty much um, out of, you know, a working class guy's range for sure. So oh, you, we were stuck with the spring reverbs, right? <laughs> in, in, twin, in the in the twin reverb amp, you know, and right. that was pretty amazing to have a reverb like that. That uh, you didn't have to go to a special concrete room, right? But then that Lexicon two twenty four came. Yeah, along. and then that became really an instrument, and so as an instrument of reverberation. Right, and so you would design these acoustic spaces that then you could custom tune, you know, how large of an arena you want this sound in or what kind of cathedral you want to play these chords into. And so for years I've been living in that dimension of creating that with with those tools that have become again affordable and portable, but also much more uh, the sonic quality, the integrity is so high. So um, the combination of that and then understanding the understanding of acoustic spaces as I do now more after playing in them and Europe and you know like Grace Cathedral. Well, you've become aware of a, of architecture and yeah, you're sonic, an architectural a sonic designer. Sonic architecture and then to go in and just understand those certain qualities of those certain frequencies that really just get in to your being and emphasize that and then open that gap and go further and further into that space. I mean, that's really, that's, I just love to dwell there. And yeah. Well, I'm afraid our time is up. Thank you so much for talking with us, Thank Steve. Thank you. It's I, a great pleasure. Oh, it's, it's, I really appreciate talking with you. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we've been talking with my guest, Steve Roach. And how can people get a hold of you, Steve? Yes, www.steveroach.com. I'm your host, Anthony Wright, on Attunement. Thanks for listening.